if Congress does not pass a budget and approve some of the requests that the department made about multi-year procurement, I don't think you're going to see the investments in the industrial base and in weapons production lines to the scale that are needed to meet all of these ongoing challenges. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. This week, there was an Air Power headline everywhere you turned. And we're going to try to pack as much goodness into the show as we possibly can. Joining us first will be Dr. Stacey Pettyjohn of the Center for a New American Security, who chaired a fascinating discussion with Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall last week. Mark Gunzinger of the Mitchell Institute on the B-21's first flight and Dr. Tom Carrico of the Center for Strategic and International Studies with his monthly air and missile defense update. And we'll also have our headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. From America's first jet engine to the revolutionary three-stream adaptive cycle engine, GE Aerospace has been delivering firsts for military propulsion for more than 100 years. Learn about the latest innovation at geaerospace.com XA100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. And Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? Well, Vago, as you mentioned, the big story, the B-21's first flight. We'll be covering that in greater detail with Mark Gunzinger later in the program. The Air Force has also confirmed delivery of the first production T-7A Red Hawk trainer, which means that program is now in developmental testing. One down, 350 to go. Secretary Kendall, subsequent to his discussion that we're going to talk to Stacey Pettyjohn about, mentioned that we had an X-plane early in the NGAD program. The costs were split among DARPA, the Air Force, and the Navy for about $1 billion. Speaking of X-planes, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency and SOCOM have selected four competitors for a new X-plane project. This one we actually talk about in advance. It's called the Speed and Runway Independent Technology, or SPRINT, program. Their basic goal is a vertical takeoff and landing aircraft that flies at jet speeds. Real Avengers technology here. DARPA has chosen Bell Textron, Northrop Grumman, Pia Secchi Aircraft, and Aurora Flight Sciences to participate in the program. Hey, it's Thanksgiving savings time at your Boeing dealer. The F-15EX will cost 90 to 97 million per unit based on the latest contract for 48. That's an interesting price point because you're definitely getting into, do I get an F-35 or do I get an F-15EX territory? And GE Aerospace has finished a third phase of testing its XA100 adaptive cycle engine. They had already done all the tests required for the adaptive engine transition program So you might see these additional tests as maybe focused on requirements for, I don't know, some large fighter aircraft program that's in the years ahead. Vago? Indeed, that's a a very elegant way of putting it. Thanksgiving savings time, go to your Boeing dealer, you know, Mickey Blackwell of Lockheed Martin. What does it use to say? $28 million and I'll throw in a tank of gas on uh, F-16s. And I always thought it was funny that he was going to throw in a tank of gas in it. And I, I would always ask him whether or not you get the little tree air freshener uh, hanging from your uh, rearview mirror as well. 
So anybody who knows the NGAD program knows that there was that demonstrator and that uh, Secretary Kendall, when he was Undersecretary of Acquisition Technology and Logistics, uh, had started the program then. And so it's interesting how it's progressed. And as we have understood it, Boeing was the one who had that demonstrator program that put a, a lot of fear into the other competitors when they said, wait a minute, you know, how did how did Boeing end up winning that uh, program? There's never been any official confirmation of that. And then how that demonstrated technologies that obviously are going into this uh, NGAD phase where, you know, it's pretty clear that we've got two competitors uh, in, in the program right now. How did you interpret that? Vago, we earlier reported that there were three prototypes in this program and had it confirmed. But what we hadn't talked about was this X-plane program, which, as you indicate, was apparently a single aircraft gathering data that then was used by the various competitors. And the idea that this program was started in 2015 substantially predates what we knew about the NGAD program before. Uh, even though, right, there has been some conversation about what that early program was like. Uh, and it is terrific, uh, as you and I have discussed, to see the Piasecki name in there, right? I mean, one of the true uh, innovators. And indeed, right, if you have Bell, Piasecki, and Sikorsky, those are sort of the early innovators on vertical flight. And it's good, yes, to see those names continuing. And an interesting diversity of candidates on this DARPA X-Plane project you think of Bell Textron primarily as a rotorcraft manufacturer, certainly Piasecki as well. Aurora Flight Sciences, which is now a division of Boeing, has been focused on the uninhabited aircraft market, and Northrop Grumman builds pretty much anything. So they've got uh, a fascinating team competing to create this vertical takeoff high-speed jet. And uh, anybody who tracks uh, the evolution of all of these businesses will also understand that Piasecki is also in Boeing. You know, was yes. the Bertol Group and is, is Boeing Helicopters now. So it's it's kind of interesting how again multiple great names are being uh, represented, whether independently under their own name or through defense industrial DNA. The developers of the original flying banana, the flying banana, indeed a terrific, terrific airplane and just an incredible innovator. Also, want to sort of point out right that people sometimes forget that Bell, who's obviously an important sponsor of our programs, but historically, you know, the first jet was a Bell. The Bell X-1, the two, it was a company that had uh, certainly both jet experience in terms of the first jet, as well as rocket plane and X-plane and a variety of other technologies before it settled on becoming a helicopter maker. And then a tilt rotor uh, developer, right? So, I mean, it's an interesting company with a lot of interesting uh, DNA in it as well. And joining us now is Dr. Stacy Pettyjohn. She is the director of the defense program at the Center for a New American Security, one of Washington's fine think tanks. And she has been hosting a series of absolutely fascinating discussions, most recently this week with Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall. Stacy, uh, always great to have you on the program. Thanks so very much for making time for us. Thanks for having me. It is always a pleasure. You hosted a fireside chat uh, replete with the CNAS faux fireplace, <laughs> which I love the Yule log burning in the corner for your fireside chat with Air Force Secretary Kendall. He is always terrific value every time he talks. And there were various pieces to the conversation. And obviously, you started it off with the, with the budgetary uncertainty. And obviously, the government could run out of money on Friday. Give us your sense on what some of the big takeaways were. Thanks for the kind words, Vago. Uh, you know, we try to create the right ambiance when we do these things. Um, Secretary Kendall was, I think, really adamant that 
the Air Force, the Department of the Air Force, so the Air and Space Forces together are moving out and know what they need to do to be prepared to deal with the pacing challenge of China and to strengthen deterrence. Um, but the problems that they're encountering right now is that they don't have enough money and the money is not coming in when they expect it to. So the tremendous uncertainty associated with whether Congress will actually appropriate funds and pass a budget, let alone on time ever, whether the government shuts down, all of these things have uh, knock-on effects that aren't fully appreciated and that really prevent the Air Force from executing the plans that it has in place and taking the actions that it know that it needs to take to um, improve its capabilities and to really be able to tackle the operational challenges that the secretary has outlined. He boiled it down. By the way, that was great research on your part, right? I mean, since 1977, we've had one form or other of continuing resolution, which sort of puts this into a little bit of sharp contrast. We've been budgetarily abnormal for some time. But I thought it was interesting that Secretary Kendall said, uh, in answer to one of your questions, this isn't a thinking question. It's not a planning question. It's simply a money question. If we got the money, we can execute. But given the way that we're getting the money, it's like we're giving our adversaries a quarter lap lead on a dead heat race, right? Exactly. That, you know, your continuing programs that you've decided aren't going to work out and that you want to divest from, you don't get to start the new programs that you want to or expand them in the way that you've planned. So on the procurement side, it's really challenging. And then if the government shuts down, you know, that has much broader implications in terms of day-to-day operations and issues associated with readiness and such, um, which are also hard to recoup from. You know, one of the things Secretary Kendall has talked about when he was even undersecretary was that whatever war we have might not actually be a short, fast one. It could actually be a protracted one. And we see historically, whenever there is a war, it has a tendency of running on. Give us your sense on what the secretary's thinking was on the industrial aspects of what this unfortunately might look like. And then your sense on whether we're moving fast enough to replenish the elements of our arsenals that we are depleting in support of Ukraine, that we're going to deplete a little bit more to help our Israeli allies. And then how much is actually left over to turn Taiwan into the porcupine we needed to, not just munitions, but just actually getting weapon systems out there in the quantities that we need them. I think that protraction is something that we do need to think about. My colleague, Andrew Metric, just wrote an awesome report called Rolling the Iron Dice that focuses on this issue and the potential for a protracted conflict between the United States and China. But the secretary was pretty clear that the first step in this is deterring China and deterring China is focusing on the first part of a conflict. So this is something that I, I support the idea of stopping the fait accompli, you know, deterrence by denial. You obviously can't lose in the opening phases of a war. But Andrew argues in his report is the fact that there's sort of an unfounded faith that we can uh, leverage a lot of long range precision weapons and firepower 
to decisively defeat the enemy. And when it's a great power, they have so many latent resources and different things that they can draw on that that's likely not possible. Plus, when you combine things about um, considerations about nuclear weapons and deterrence, and given where China's moving in that direction, it, it adds a lot of complications to those calculations. So I think the secretary came down on the uh, by saying that protraction is you know, something we need to worry about, but he has to be focused on deterrence and winning in the first phase, if possible. And that when you think about having a prolonged conflict, you want to take steps to hedge and to try to strengthen certain aspects of your industrial base. Um, that probably cannot be quickly ramped up, but you're not going to be able to have everything that you need. I think he's ex exactly right there, right? You're not going to produce an F-35 or uh, NGAD aircraft really quickly, let alone a submarine or any major weapon system or platform. But munitions is one area where we've seen the expenditure rates in Ukraine are just absurd and so far outstrip anything that anyone expected. And we continually underinvest there. And I do think the Air Force and the Department as a whole of defense is moving in the right direction on munitions and starting to acquire larger inventories of different types of anti-ship weapons. But they still have a long way to go. And a lot of the particular systems that the secretary identified when we spoke were not the ones, the exact ones that I think are the most important for China. Our industrial base right now is not able to meet the current demand. It's struggling to, and there's ramping up and there've been investments and a lot of the money from the Ukraine supplementals has helped this, but it's still not moving quickly enough to meet all of the demand. They're finding a way and what Secretary Doug Bush has done um, with the army on 155 is pretty astonishing and really impressive and Dr. LaPlante as well and the JPAC and everyone and on that side of the house. But you're right, 155 is not what the U.S. needs when it looks to the Pacific. So I think there is some differentiation there. The one area where there's a lot of overlap are the longer range air defense weapons, which would be really important. And if Congress does not pass a budget and approve some of the request that the department made about multi-year procurement, I don't think you're going to see the investments in the industrial base and in weapons production lines to the scale that are needed to meet all of these ongoing challenges. I want to get to Replicator in a moment, but I feel like I have to ask you this question because I've heard Dr. LaPlante, and he's been very articulate about sort of bringing the building together. He joined you. You've convened some terrific discussions, uh, Stacey, so kudos on that. But every time we hear from senior officials, right, whether we hear from Doug Bush or, you know, Admiral Caldwell, the naval reactors boss, or Admiral Houston, right? I mean, last week was fascinating because Doug Bush had a meeting roundtable with reporters and then submarine league was going on. And virtually nobody talks about the OSD role in helping coordinate all of this, right? We hear about an army silo. We hear from Secretary Kendall about an Air Force silo. We hear from Navy leaders on the Navy silo. And so a lot of people are left asking, well, wait a minute, what's OSD doing to help facilitate all of this, right? Is OSD, without being critical of anybody, and I'm certainly a huge fan of Dr. LaPlante's and Dr. Shoes, but is is there enough OSD coordination in this? Because every once in a while, when we hear the messaging, 
the messaging is what the army is doing, the navy is doing, and the air force is doing, not the overlay that the department is putting onto this to actually ease the burden in each one of these silos. I think they're doing some things and they're making some improvements. There has been an additional process with the POM each year where they focus on a few strategic areas or capabilities that are joint and think about the whole portfolio. And I think that's good, but I don't think it has quite gone far enough because those silos, as you noted, with the services are so deeply entrenched and the services really do drive the development of their own POM. So what we argued in um, a report, Hannah Dennis and I, was really that there needs to be sort of a OSD look at weapons because they matter across the services and you might be able to compensate for limitations in one area with another, but someone has to be having that holistic look. And it's not clear that those trade-offs are being systematically considered and done so consistently throughout the process to make enough of a difference where you might be weighing how many heavyweight torpedoes you need versus air launch weapons or surface launch weapons, right? And someone needs to have an eye on all of that. Right. And I think there could be a stronger role there, though there there have been more efforts to drive that process. Let me ask you uh, one last question. Uh, and I know you've had uh, UAVs on the brain. And so uh, this, is, this is an easy cue up for you. Dr. Hicks, talked about a replicator initiative some months ago, and it seems to be a point of confusion for some folks, whereas I thought she was pretty clear. It was an idea, did not have a massive amount of staff work uh, that went with it, even if the idea itself is compelling to be able to mass produce in vast volume, smaller things that we need and use non-traditional suppliers to make them. And yet there are some of the smartest people in Washington exhibit confusion about what replicator is and what isn't. And Dr. Hicks, by the way, to the audience, I am not on the CNAS payroll yet. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but you guys had Dr. Hicks there, albeit to discuss veterans issues with your colleague, but as always budget and everything else kind of crept into that discussion. Give us the audience a sense of what replicator is and it isn't and why there is the confusion about it, because it, it doesn't seem altogether that confusing. I think you have a good sense of what would make sense and what might be feasible, but I'm not sure they've been quite as clear in the messaging. And frankly, it's not clear they actually had a fully baked plan when it was announced and it took a lot of people by surprise. So when you have such a significant pronouncement and such a lofty goal, because even if you're using non-traditional suppliers, one of the challenges that the United States faces is that China so dominates the commercial drone market and small uh, UAS that while there are a good American companies, they don't have sort of the scale that you would really need to have thousands of these systems. And it's not clear that the really small commercial ones would be of tremendous value to the United States in a fight in the Indo-Pacific. They could be really useful for Taiwan. China could probably make considerable use of them, but the U.S. just has to project forces so much farther that it would need to find delivery systems to have those sort of on station at the right times, which could be really challenging. And 
that most of these type of platforms don't sort of have the endurance or range to do it on their own. So I think that given that there's an abundance of different UAV programs across the Department of Defense, you know, people talk about Phoenix Ghost and Switchblade, the small um, ground launched UAS that we've given the Ukrainians or the Valkyrie or the Ghost Bat up to whatever the CCA, what the Air Force is doing, that it's unclear uh, exactly what they meant. And my guess is it'll probably be some combination of systems, but how attributable they really are, because something like the Ghost Bat, you know, these are reasonably affordable platforms, depending upon how they're kitted out with their payload, but they're still a lot bigger and more expensive than a quadcopter produced by DJI. Stacey, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us and can't wait to welcome you and Becca back uh, onto the program. And I commend folks to go onto the YouTubes and uh, check out the events and check out Andrew's report. And we'll have Andrew on the show uh, soon to discuss his findings. Thanks so much. Thank you. And if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts on the award-winning Defense and Aerospace Report Network. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company. They clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our Technology Report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. Congratulations to Chris, Chris, and Laura for winning 2023 Defense Media Awards. For aviation geeks, this week's highlight, the first flight of the B-21 Raider. It's been coming for some time. We knew it was supposed to be before the end of the year, and all of a sudden, there it was up in the sky. We're joined by bomber expert Mark Gunzinger from the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, a regular on the program, and we're glad to have him back. Mark, it's not a B-52. I know that's what's closest to your heart. But in an era where we've simulated every piece of an aircraft, what does it mean to actually have a first flight? Well, Vago, JJ, I'll tell you, it is tangible evidence that what we've been hearing for years about the B-21 program is true. It's a success story. Uh, rollout last year uh, was an indication of that. And uh, first flight this year is absolutely proof. It's our nation's first new bomber in more than 30 years. Uh, people forget that the B-2 first joined the force in 1989. That's uh, 34 years ago. So I have little doubt that the B-21 program, which was awarded to Northrop in 2015, is on schedule. And it's going to begin to deliver operational aircraft on time later this decade. As Secretary Kendall made the note uh, when he spoke at CNAS, he was encouraged by this, right? Um, because every major program always has challenges. And when the program was originally formulated, and he was an integral part of that, to do all of a whole variety of risk reduction efforts to make sure that when the program was finally born, it would be able to move quickly. Just about everything about this program, Gonzo, is top secret. And so it caught some folks off guard you know, that it flew in broad daylight over Palmdale with enthusiasts who <laughs> staked out the route. Uh, what does it tell us about the way the story came out? Because it, it seemed like as opposed to leading with it, the Air Force ended up and Northrop ended up following the, the buzz that was created on social media. 
Well, I'm certainly not surprised at the buzz, and I'm certainly not surprised that we had aviation uh, enthusiasts just waiting for this flight. But it was not announced by the Air Force officially. They did have a, one reporter there, I believe. But the fact of the matter is, there is no advantage to the Air Force, to our nation for that matter, of revealing the B-21s, some of the details about the aircraft itself prematurely. And there's a world of difference between aviation enthusiasts staking out uh, a runway and, and getting some happy snaps to the B-21 and having the desert floor aligned with uh, members of uh, the PLA <laughs> with uh, advanced cameras and so forth, uh, trying to grab every piece of information they can to include with electronic sensors. So doing it the way they did, I think, was absolutely appropriate. This was clearly a planned test flight. The aircraft was instrumented. It had the trailing wire to do aerodynamic evaluation. They didn't cycle the gear. It's not like, say, the F-16 test flight, which was legendarily completely an accident. What does this tell us about where B-21 is on its schedule? Is it possible to say, okay, we went from rollout to first flight in less than a year, so we should go from first flight to first article on the ramp in X years? Or is that all still up in the air? Well, I, I was impressed when I heard at rollout, I, I believe you gentlemen were there as well, to hear that the first aircraft, the one we saw at rollout and the one that flew, is production representative. It's it's not a, a hollow shell and they're going to do some aerodynamic testing first. No, it's got mission systems and it'll uh, probably be converted from a test article into an operational aircraft in the future. So it's on time, but it's even more on time than perhaps uh, uh, other develop, more developmental aircraft would be uh, at this stage. I, I want to uh, reattack one thing. First flight is an important milestone. But an even more important milestone is initial operational capability, and on top of that, full operational capability. And, and that's where I uh, do have a concern. Given the Air Force's budget constraints, uh, we're pretty certain that the Air Force isn't going to be able to acquire B-21s as rapidly as they could, given more budget, and as they should, given the threat in the Indo-Pacific and in and, and other theaters. Uh, that's why I'd like to see the Air Force receive enough resources so it could double plan production and reach full operational capability as rapidly as possible to deter maybe even more this decade than uh, sometime in the late 2030s. Gonzo, and we should note for our audience, you're a high-time B-52 pilot with a lot of experience in a lot of different models, whether on the nuclear side of the house or the conventional side of the house, and you spent quite a lot of time sitting alert uh, as well. The B-21 is part of the broader national nuclear modernization, includes the ground-based strategic deterrent as well as the Columbia class. Last week, we heard from uh, Admiral Frank Caldwell, the N-8 as well as um, other submarine leaders about where they stand on the Columbia program, challenges they're eating into schedule on that, but it is a breakthrough on every dimension. Secretary Kendall said he is encouraged by what we're seeing on the B-21 program, even though every complicated development program has its challenges. He was a little more concerned about the ground-based strategic deterrence because of the sheer magnitude. I mean, he indicated it's one of the most complex programs we've done in very many decades. It's a real estate program. It's a technology program. It's a new booster. There are a whole bunch of elements, a new command and control system that goes with it. 
put the B-21 in the context of sort of the broader national nuclear modernization and the stakes, as he said, of getting it absolutely right. I mean, he said this is a no-fail mission uh, on any one of its aspects, and the U.S. Air Force has two of those uh, elements of the triad. Yeah, the Congressional Commission on the Strategic Posture in the United States recently released a report and said, uh, frankly, we absolutely must proceed with modernizing all three legs of the triad right up front. That said, from a uh, warfighter's perspective, from a deterrence perspective, the bomber leg of the triad, the so-called everything leg of the triad, is the most cost-effective, the most flexible leg, able to go on alert, uh, able to uh, disperse, and other things that can signal to our adversaries, don't try an attack. It will not turn out well for you. Secretary Kendall is absolutely right. The uh, Sentinel program is an extremely complex program. I, I don't think many people appreciate it. It's not just replacing the Minuteman three missiles, which, frankly, first flew in the 60s, amazingly. But the replacement of missiles, the launch control capsules, the uh, control facilities, the communications. It's a real estate program because of all these facilities that are spread out over uh, thousands of acres of land. Uh, they're even modernizing the uh, helicopters used to uh, provide support to uh, crews in the field. It could be DOD's largest weapon system modernization program ever. So given that, yeah, there, there are going to be uh, bumps along the way. There are going to be things that are discovered when they uh, dig up components and, oh, man, we have to do this now to that when we hadn't anticipated, which is going to drive a little bit more time and cost into the schedule. That said, we have to modernize it, and we have to get as close as we can to beginning to replace our Minuteman 3s around 2030 because... We're, we're running out of those weapons. We're running out of those missiles due to test shots, aging out components, and so forth. Finally, Gonzo, looping back on B-21, the Air Force anticipates IOC mid to late decade. What's the next public milestone or the next significant thing we're likely to see that'll tell us how likely they are to make that schedule? Yeah, I think when uh, we see the Air Force beginning to actually take uh, deliveries of low-rate production uh, aircraft. And uh, obviously, the test regime has just now started. Uh, we'll have to watch the uh, the progress of that beyond the initial flight, which is more of a ferry flight to the test, but certainly they got some test points uh, completed during that. So watch production schedule, watch the delivery schedule. And the next big milestone beyond IOC, of course, is fully operational capable. And that's when we have train crews, aircraft on the ramp in sufficient numbers, along with the weapons and other capabilities they need to actually conduct operations. Mark Gunzinger, Director of Future Concepts and Capability Assessments at the Mitchell Institute. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, gentlemen. And joining us now is Dr. Tom Carrico, who is one of the nation's and indeed one of the world's leading experts on air and missile defenses, as well as long-range strike. He is the director of the Air and Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Tom, thanks so very much for joining us. Hey, good morning, Vago and JJ. Great to be back. 
It is great to be back. Unfortunately, the last time you joined us was just before Hamas's brutal October 7 attacks on Israel. And we wanted to kind of take an opportunity to get an update because this really has been an air and missile defense war in many respects. Hamas started this off with a massive barrage of 3,000 rockets from Gaza to Israel as a distraction. And then their terror squads moved in and, and made mayhem across the country. And we've seen Houthis get involved in long-range strikes aimed at Israel, but as well as the USS Kearney, which is the ship that's been in the Red Sea. We've also seen Hezbollah getting into this game. And obviously, uh, Syrian and Iranian proxy attacks on American forces in the region. Now we're, I think, north of 50 attacks since October 7. And a lot of it is an aerial component to it. Walk us through the threat and how it's been evolving on the strike part before we go to how this is sort of taxing uh, defenses, as is the case in Ukraine. Sure. Well, of course, I want to say at the outset that, you know, it's been a rough month and that, of course, for all of the many that you rightly note air missile attacks, uh, you know, so many of the atrocities have been on the ground. And so, yes, it was in that respect, a combined arms effort. But, you know, as you note, in the first couple days, uh, beginning October 7, you know, I think it was like 2,500 rockets and uh, missiles fired uh, to Israel from two various places. And then, you know, over the next couple of days, it just kept going. And some number of thousands at this point, Th- that has promptly shifted in, in many respects to a ground conflict, although for a while there, Hamas was still shooting lots of stuff out of Gaza. So, you know, that wasn't uh, quieted uh, immediately. In that respect, the conflict in that area is shifting a bit to the street fighting and to the bombs and bulldozers aspect more than the missiles. But as you note, there have been some uh, missiles fired uh, both from the north, from Hezbollah. Thankfully, so far, that number has been limited. The totality of all this, nevertheless, has strained the capacity of uh, Israeli air and missile defenses, uh, but it also shows yet again uh, the strategic utility uh, of these things. And so uh, it at least bought time and limited damage until the IDF was able to respond. Of course, the uh, folks in the north, uh, Hezbollah, have many tens of thousands of rockets. Uh, And of course, if they were to get involved in earnest, that would be a very bad development the numbers sometimes range to 150,000 in terms of estimates, what it is that they have. And there's just not enough Tamir interceptors in the world to contend with with those sorts of things. But as you also note, Vago, there's lots of other things going on on the rocket and drone front, UAV front. You know, I think a couple of days ago, it was 52 attacks and counting on U.S. forces. And then the quote unquote Houthis from Yemen are somehow ginning up some interesting cruise missiles and ballistic missiles and firing them, you know, north, northeastern. We've seen now a operational usage of both, I think, the Arrow 2 against a somewhat shorter range missile, and then also the first operational uh, usage of the Arrow 3. That's Israel's exoatmospheric, so think longer range uh, threat missiles that are, that are taken out, and it reportedly got its target. The USS Kearney uh, that you spoke about, you know, that took out uh, reportedly three, four, depending on the source, uh, cruise missiles and some number of drones from the quote unquote Houthis. So whether they were firing at the Kearney or the Kearney was in the right place uh, at the right time, if they're headed to Israel, that's perhaps a common speculation. But nevertheless, the USS Kearney Aegis Destroyer, using SM2s and some other things, uh, took out uh, those things as well. 
Let me take you to the question of uh, capabilities were uh, surging into the region. The U.S. Army uh, made a U-turn. It was going to have a Patriot battery at the Dubai Air Show. It withdrew that battery and deployed it forward. The United States is leasing back an Iron Dome battery and sending as many of the rockets over to Israel as possible as new production capability is uh, inaugurated in the United States to try to help production. Talk to us about sort of the surge in capability and how the United States is doing this shell game, because these Patriot batteries, you know, and in the immortal words of Don Rumsfeld, which he said was the stupidest phrase ever invented, and I would agree with him, low density, high demand. One would think that given the demand, you'd have higher density. But alas, here we sit without opposable thumbs. Walk us through what we're doing in order to help out our Israeli allies, but also better defend our forces in the region. Well, in defense of low density, high demand, I would say that it's it's descriptive of a problem and there's plenty of competition among Pentagon jargon uh, for that title. So uh, (laughs) for what it's worth. Fair enough. Now, uh, number two, you know, the first thing that the U.S. did to signal resolve and to signal its deterrence interest was to start moving carriers to the area. But pretty much the second thing they did was to scramble a bunch of C-17s and transport aircraft to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and scoop up a bunch of Patriot batteries and send them over to lots of different places uh, in the Middle East, whether it be U.S. bases or, or what have you. So you're right, I think, especially for the deterrence aspect, for the kind of assurance aspect for our partners, uh, and also signal to Iran, like, no, 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 this is a bad day. This is not uh, the day to uh, do something uh, stupid, although there's certainly been some uh, so lots of rhetoric coming out uh, from Iran. And it is, of course, almost impossible not to see some Iranian fingerprints on some of these activities. And of course, it's, it also bears uh, uh, saying that Russia and China are certainly the beneficiaries of all of this, at the very least, let's call it a distraction, but they are they are beneficiaries of that, to be sure. So yeah, all those patriots coming out of uh, garrison and such heading over there, that also means that they're not held in reserve for other things, for other parts of the world. So there, there's, I would say, a, a rightful caution you know, about our overall force posture situation. We can't put all of our patriots in the Middle East and have them available for other things. Tom, we're building up capability in a lot of ways, and some of them are a little unconventional. A word has entered the discussion that we've not heard in air and missile defense circles for some years, and that word is hawk. What does it say about how deep our barrel is if in response to a crisis like this, we're going back several steps in technology to try and defend our own forces as well as our allies? Yeah. So uh, Hawk, which is like Patriot, an acronym, Hawk is homing all the way killer. Back in the day, Hawk and Patriot were uh, designed to operate together. And then we decided that we had air superiority and we could suffice with uh, sectored coverage. But you're alluding to the, you know, especially to the Ukraine transfers, which have been kind of been going on over the past year and, and change. You know, some countries still operate Hawk, like Spain. And so the U.S., I think, was sending some missiles. I think Spain has been sending some uh, the Hawk launchers you know, over the past year. And, and so it really speaks to the scrounging the bottom of the barrel. Uh, no disrespect to the system or those that use it and have used it, but just in terms, as you know, JJ, it's, it's just an older, older capability. Uh, so it really just speaks to the, the need for capacity. And uh, in terms of uh, of Israel, for, back to that for a second, the United States uh, transferred back 
uh, R2 Iron Dome batteries to Israel. Uh, that was something we bought as an interim capability. I happened to write something in the spring saying, you know, it's really just not a good fit for the U.S. Army. Uh, so I'm really glad that it was able to be transferred back to the Israelis in their hour of need because they need, you know, every Tamir uh, interceptor that they can get. So you're right, JJ, it's it's fundamentally a question of capacity, and it's why we've been scrounging among uh, the, the couch cushions for uh, AMRAMs, for the NASAM system for Ukraine, and, and lots of other things like that. Day one of the Israel-Hamas conflict featured a lot of UAS used by Hamas, some to take out Israeli fortifications. We're a couple of years into the Ukraine conflict, and UAS are still being effective on the battlefield. And you mentioned the Houthis' use of them against the Kearney. What's the current state of counter-UAS, and does that need to be accelerated in order to meet what seems to be a rapidly proliferating threat around the world? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's a good question, uh, because just yesterday, on the 14th, at CSIS, we uh, released a new report on counter-UAS. Uh, uh, we had over uh, Major General Sean Ganey, uh, who's the head of the joint office uh, assigned to, to that function. And the report's lead author, Sean Sheikh, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that uh, the main takeaway is, hey, this is a really hard problem. Capacity and training are probably uh, the most uh, urgent needs, but it's the, and I know this is kind of a cliche, especially to for your audience, but you know, no kidding, it's not just the material widgets, but it is really the the uh, the dot mil PF, you know, the organizational uh, implications of the fact that every unit, not just the ADA, the air defense artillery, but every unit kind of needs to be concerned about this. This is an everybody problem. And when you think through the need to distribute and proliferate various CUAS capabilities to maneuver forces, to logistic, all, all kinds of folks. Um, it, it's going to require basic training. Everybody's going to have to get a little bit of CUAS awareness uh, in basic training even. And so the implications are pretty deep. Uh, and that's kind of, uh, that's, that's part of the, the takeaways from, from our report yesterday. I encourage you to take a look at that. Uh, we, we say that it's the next chapter uh, of air defense. But I also want to emphasize, and I know this is a Perhaps a pedantic point, but I'm really good at making pedantic points, and that is that you know the etymology of the word missile just means that which is sent. And I think that we are clouding our thinking by coming up with new acronyms and phrases like UAS. They are missiles if they are you know going to head to their target and uh, a one-way uh, attack. Whether a Shahid 136 is a poor man's cruise missile or a quote-unquote UAS uh, or UAV, I mean, it sure kind of looks like a like a cruise missile uh, and feels like a cruise missile if you're on the receiving end. So I, I would also note that the 2022 Missile Defense Review put UAS into the uh, missile defense problem set. And I think that was right because it is much more of a continuum than a, than a discontinuum. We're surging artillery shell production. We're boosting unmanned systems. Kath Hicks, your former colleague, now the Deputy Defense Secretary, is talking about the Replicator Initiative to mass produce large quantities of uh, effectively killer drones, for lack of a better word. What are we doing on the air and missile defense front? Because production rates for these weapons are, are really in quite boutique quantities. They're complicated weapons. They're expensive to make. Where are we in getting these into production, because as JJ's question and your answer said, we're rating museum pieces. We're updating them, and and some of them are perfectly capable for to shoot down shaheds and things like that. 
But at the end of the day, we also need that next generation of capability. And we're approaching the bottom of our existing air and missile defense barrels. What are we right. doing in a concerted, organized national fashion to boost production of these deterrent systems? Yeah. So I would say there's the, the U.S. Army, for instance, is uh, uh, looking in earnest at not just the things like the 155, but also, uh, you know, the the solid rocket motor industrial base. And not just for the things like Gimler's, but that is going to inform the, the PAC-3. The PAC-3 demand signal, I believe, is just going to continue to uh, explode. And you're seeing that from partners demand, but also from us. Having said that, Vago, the short answer to your question is not enough. And I, it is a bit of a head scratcher. I mean, I've been saying for five years that there's a misalignment between what we say in the last two national defense strategies and what we're doing on the air and missile defense front. But it is a bit of a head scratcher that, for instance, the House uh, Appropriations Committee, Hack D, uh, you know, throttled back our multi-year procurement on so on, on lots of different munitions. I think it had to do with the McCarthy Biden deal. But nevertheless, I mean, come on, guys. It's time to uh, to act like you mean it in terms of the production. The supplemental that's working its way through that has the stuff for Israel, you know, by the way, tons of Iron Dome production. A lot of that's going to be in the U.S., uh, but also David Sling, Arrow, and I believe $1.2 billion for what's called Iron Beam, a not yet fully developed uh, laser uh, system that, uh, that Israel is uh, aspiring to build. By the way, that $1.2 billion is more than DOD is spending on U.S. Army laser systems. Right. So that's an interesting uh, development as well. So we've got to get after the capacity thing, the directed energy stuff, HPMs and lasers are going to be really critical to that uh, capacity thing as well. Dr. Tom Carrico, Director of the Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Very good to have you back, and we look forward to speaking with you every month. Great to be with you all. And again, uh, none of this matters if you're dead, and that's why you need air defense. Hey, folks, just this scheduling note, no Air Power podcast next week. Next Thursday is Thanksgiving. And, well, we're about things that fly. As Les Nessman proved, turkeys don't. We'll see you right after.